Good morning, church family and online. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon who you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to behold Christ. This time that we have in your word is precious. Help us to behold the Lamb of God who came to live and to die in our place to take away the sin of the world. May we have hearts that are thankful. May we have minds that are receptive to hear your word and not only be hearers, but doers. We pray for this time. May your spirit guide my words. May it edify your body and glorify you, Father, we pray in your son's matchless, precious, precious name. Amen. Please be seated. A picture is going to come up on the screen here in a second, and this is the second main image that I'm putting in your minds in the book of John. Happy early Reformation Day. Okay, there's about seven that know what I'm talking about. Good. Uh, Reformation Day is celebrated October 31st every year. It started officially in 1517. It is accredited and commemorated October 31st, 1517. And the Reformation, as you may recall in the last image that I showed you, uh, you remember Martin Luther was standing with his left hand on the Bible and his right hand pointing to the cross. And Jesus Christ was on the cross. And I made a point, and it was an important point, that was we don't have Christ on the cross behind me. Why? Because Christ not only came to live and die, but he rose again. And you remember the crowd that was looking at the cross, and there was in that former picture some that were turned away. And Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door to the castle church in Wittenberg uh, to start the Reformation. 
He didn't realize what he was starting. But here we are, many years later, commemorating an important event. For what he stood against was things that were wrong. What had happened at that point in time is you had the Roman Catholic Church that were looking for money for penance. Things that would help you earn your place in the kingdom or in salvation. And Luther, by studying God's word, realized that it was faith alone, in Christ alone, and the grace of God alone that provides salvation alone. This next picture I want to draw your attention to comes from an altarpiece in Ghent, Belgium. This is a masterpiece. This is the first major oil painting that is known in the history of painting. The painting here was painted by Hubert and Jan van Eyck. Hopefully I said that right, gents. It's from that area of the world. Okay. Some debate exists who finished this work of art. But what there is no debate over is that this painting has one central figure, which is the Lamb of God. Five groups of people are assembled around this painting. And if you look carefully for those that can see it, you're going to see some are are looking at open books. Some are looking at the Lamb. Some are bowing down. The five groups are distinct groups. At the very top, and you can't really see it well, but the Holy Spirit, denoted by a dove, is descending upon the lamb. The meadow is framed by trees and bushes. And in the background are the spires of Jerusalem depicted. The lamb stands on the altar, and he's surrounded by 14 angels arranged in a circle, some holding the symbols of Christ's passion and two swing censers. The lamb has a wound on its breast, which is being caught by a golden chalice. The disciples are on the bottom right in the clothing that's plain, bowing down and worshiping the lamb. We could speculate all day. Who are the other four groups? It would be fruitless. It would be pointless. But what is certain when we analyze this picture is that seven of them have the Bible open. One group that has the Bible open in the bottom left, if you studied their faces carefully, are from all around the world. This morning, I just read to you from John 1, and it says that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, came to take away the sin of the world. Catch the wording there. Something is happening in this passage which we're going to explore and unpack together. So that group in the bottom left, you can see if you could zone in on them, and I, maybe iPhones, maybe I'm getting older, but every, have you ever seen a picture and you just want to go like this and expand it? Yeah, that's how I do all pictures now. So in this particular one, I, I want to zoom in on that group on the left, and if you could, what you would see is their eyes are all on the lamp. They've been studying scriptures, and they found the lamb. The bottom right, conversely, look like some 
fairly important people dressed well, studying scriptures, but turned away from the lamb. What is certain in this picture is below the lamb, written in Italian, and let me read to you what it says in English. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is certain is that religious leaders were not expecting the lamb. What is certain is that the Bible is pointing to the lamb, but they did not expect the lamb. The group on the bottom left all have their eyes on the lamb. The group on the bottom right all have their eyes away from the lamb. My question to you is this. Where are your eyes? Where are my eyes? We're going to spend time unpacking. Now, last week, Jeremy brought us through 10 verses. And thank you, Jeremy, for doing that. This morning, I'm going to get you through three. You're back to me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Next week, we're going to have two verses, actually, only. So we're going to unpack John 1, 29 to 34 in two weeks because there's so much to squeeze out of these five verses that I'm going to actually break it in two Sundays. Now, the benefit of that, which I did not intend to be, is we're going to land at John 3.16 on Christmas morning. Praise God. And this is not news to, I hope not news to most of you, but we are going to have a Christmas Eve Eve service here as well. So we are going to be celebrating Christ the risen Savior, and reflecting on Christmas Eve, Eve, if I'm saying it right, and going back to John 1.14 as our key verse. And so, this morning, we want to study God's word. So let's go back and reread. Let me read to you the first verse in this passage. John 1.29. So John 1.29. God's word says... The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Let's stop with the word behold. This is not going to be fast, but it will be fruitful. So behold comes from a Greek word which occurs only 29 times in the New Testament. 19 of them occur in the book of John alone. And this is the first instance where behold occurs. For those that take notes, here's the big idea. The Lion of Judah. Let me do it slowly. The Lion of Judah came as the Lamb of God and conquered sin and death and provided the means for reconciliation to a holy and just God. Let me repeat it. The Lion of Judah came as the Lamb of God and conquered sin and death. And it provided the means for reconciliation to a holy and a just God. Now some pens are still going, so I'm going to repeat it one last time. This is critical. The Lion of Judah came as the Lamb of God and conquered sin and death, providing the means for reconciliation 
to a holy and just God. We're going to land there by unpacking three points. The first one is in your bulletin. You're welcome. I've heard comments that perhaps I would speak a little fast through some of the points and reference a lot of scriptures. Maybe you didn't catch them all. So thanks to Linda and all the hard work of the office staff. We now have the three points in the bulletin and all of the scriptures that we'll be touching on for your future reference and reflection. So if you open up your bulletins, the first point is behold the Lamb of God, verse 29. Our goal is to get all eyes on Jesus. And in order to do so, we need to get our heads down into our Bibles. Behold comes from the Greek word ide. Occurs 29 times as mentioned. 19 in the book of John. This is the first instance. But before we get to there, you remember what it says. What does it say? The next day. Do you catch that? The next day relative to what? Relative to what happened before. The day before, what did we have? You had the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders sent a delegate, a group in as Pastor Jeremy talked about last week. And what did he say? They sent them in with one critical question broken down into three parts. What they wanted to know was what is or who is John the Baptist. But really the essence that they were aiming at is what is the authority that he had? So they asked it in a, in, in, a, in a series of questions. Who are you? Number one. Number two, what do you have to say about yourself? And number three, if you are not the Christ, if you are not the Messiah, if you are not Elijah, if you are not the prophet, then why are you baptizing? And so here we have the next day. The next day is indicating three times, as you'll see in your Bibles, if you scan forward and look at the major chapters that come after this, you will start to see this rhetoric happening again and again. In each of the breaks, you're going to start to see it starting with the next day and the next day. And what this is, is this is the start of Jesus's public ministry. And so if you scan quickly down in your Bibles... And look with me. Let me take you through where you're going to see this. So John 1, 29, the next day. Fast forward to verse 35. Again, the next day. Look down to verse 43, the next day. And the day after that, it starts in John 2, verse 1. On the third day, Jesus' public ministry has started. Behold, the Lamb of God, day two, has started. And so behold is the key that we want to unpack. Ide appears 29 times. Ide is actually 27 of the 29 in the Gospels. 19 once again, of the 29 are in the book of John. John wants you to behold something. Ide, it translates into three different words. Behold, examine, or see. 
John's favorite usage of the word is behold. Do you remember at the cross when Jesus is hanging and Jesus looks to his mother and he says to John, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. It's the exact same word. And so what you have here is John pointing and saying, not only see, examine, behold, here comes the Lamb of God. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world did he open with behold the Lamb of God? Do you remember what the Sanhedrin were asking him? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, Elijah, the prophet? But he does not answer with, behold the Messiah, behold the Christ. He says, no, no, behold the Lamb of God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, why did he use a title that they didn't use about him? Why is this title, the Lamb of God, put at this particular part? And did John understand the meaning of it truly? And I think the answer is no. But by divine inspiration, God's word is accurate. And you can see here that the lamb is an Old Testament that carries all the way back to the first instance. Do you remember Abraham and Isaac? They're going up. They're going to the altar. And they said, what did he say, Isaac? We have the wood, but we need the lamb. Exodus 12. Exodus 12, you have a unblemished lamb. If you opened and read through the entire, let me give you three verses. Exodus 12, the requirements for the Passover lamb, which included a lamb that must be unblemished, verse 5. And when it is slaughtered, the blood is to be put on the doorposts and the lintel from verse 7. And so in the Old Testament, there was already a sacrificial system for sin and atoning, but it was temporal. Now, Matt got one of the wonderful passages of Genesis that did not include all of the names, so you're welcome on the assignment of that one. Poor Duane had those. But When you go back to Genesis 3 and all to Genesis 6, what do you see from the very start of mankind? There is corruption ever since sin has entered in the world to the point, as we've read today from Genesis 6, that the corruption was so deep, so deep, that there was one. There was one that God looked to to become a foreshadowing and an ark that was coming to become a form of a salvation. All of these were temporal signs. These were not permanent. But all of these would foreshadow and point to a permanency that would come in and through Christ alone. And so what you see here in the Old Testament sacrificial system, Leviticus 1, 1 through 3. Let me read to you God's word. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals 
from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it on the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. The priest in Numbers 28, 16 to 25 took a lamb without any spots or marks to offer for each family. This goes on and on and on. The Old Testament has many, many, many animals. In fact, the temple, you can think of Passover as a once a year event. Twice a day, a lamb was slaughtered by the priest outside the temple in atonement for the sins for the day of the people, twice daily. The people in the Old Testament were very used to the blood of lambs being spilt for sins of the people. Spotless is constantly being used without defect as a foreshadowing of what would be required permanently. We know that there's several instances throughout the Old Testament. But there's an argument that's made by scholars, and it's important you understand this. Well, was it really a lamb? Or was it by the blood of bulls and goats? So those that are technical into the Old Testament will say, well, really, was it lamb or was it bulls and goats? And the scapegoat was driven out in the wilderness, but the lambs were not perhaps used explicitly for sin offerings. I think they're wrong. How do I know so? Isaiah 53. And this is what God's word says to us. The servant was wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities. And God laid the servant on him, the sins of the iniquities of us all. Most significantly, and this is why I believe it to be accurate, the New Testament tells us in the naming of Jesus as the Lamb of God. The Old Testament, all of the blood that was spilt in the temples for the people, for the sins, are pointing forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. The suffering servant. The sufferer, the servant who was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, as Matt has already mentioned. God laid on the servant the sins and iniquities of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 6. And in verse 7, it continues. Like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The servant was wounded for us. John 1, 29, and look down to verse 36 with me. Behold the Lamb of God. Twice referenced. There's also references in Hebrew 7, 27. The death of the spotless lamb pointed toward the true lamb that would give his life in our place once and for all time. And finally, 1 Peter 1.19, but the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. The lamb of God. Do you want to behold him? This is not a rhetorical question. Examining Christ 
realizing who Christ is, reorients everything. The people that came to see, what does it say at the end of verse 36 into 37? Behold the Lamb of God. The disciples saw him and they followed him. Understanding who is the Lamb of God requires obedience and action. Immediately, an understanding of who the Lamb of God is reorients our entire existence. Now, the second point that we'll get into this morning is the Lamb enables reconciliation. Now, this is a big term for those that are newer into the Christian faith or perhaps younger or have been in the faith a long time but never actually asked what does the word reconciliation mean. Let me be really clear. This is a big term which basically says this. God is holy, man is sinful, and the chasm that exists between the two is so great that there needs to be something that bridges the two of these across. And the term, technical term, is a reconciliation, being made right. And in order to do so, you have to expiate or to eradicate the sins in a way that allows the two to be united. And so how can man that is a sinner expiate or reconcile man to a holy God? And so reconciliation is the crucial part to catch from this text. For what God's word teaches us is that all of the sacrificial systems weren't working. In fact, they were all pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So the Lamb enables reconciliation. For those that take notes, I think this is one of the most important points. Let me read it to you slowly. The lamb enabled reconciliation through his sacrificial substitution, which satisfies the wrath of God. So the lamb enabled reconciliation through his sacrificial substitution, which satisfied the wrath of God. I used three S's. I did my best. Sacrificial system that satisfies the wrath of God. Some of you may have read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I see some smiles. I see some head nods. Maybe some of you saw the movie, which, by the way, is now showing up as a classic, which means I'm getting really old really fast. Okay? I don't know how that can be when it's in the 90s or whatever it was, and it's now a classic, but anyways... In the book or in the movie, the character of Jesus Christ is portrayed by Aslan the lion. And for those that know the story, you'll remember one of the four Pevensey kids chose to follow his own way, wanted his sweeties, his treats. And so he lied. He pretended that he didn't go in and talk to the white witch. He tried to come back to get more of the things that he wanted. 
And the witch realized, and if you remember the scene, she wanted him to bring his siblings because the witch wanted to kill all of them. And so through his sin, the witch had dominion over his life. Perhaps you know what that's like before you're a Christian. And so Aslan makes a sacrificial substitute and the scene is beautiful. It's a tent and the witch comes up to the tent and she walks in and the lion is powerful. And something happens behind closed doors that nobody understands at the time. She leaves and Aslan is murdered on the stone table. And Lucy, the little girl, one of the two girls, and her sister Susan Pevensey are standing weeping. The lion has been bound. The lion has been, has been shaved. And the lion has is, is, is been slaughtered on the table. I appreciate the background music from my scene. Um, <laughs> And the lion has been slain. And the girls are standing crying. They can't believe that the great lion has been killed. And that night something happens. In the darkest hour, just when all hope seems lost, if you remember the scene, the sun rises, the table cracks, and the girls turn, and the lion's gone. And they said, who took him? Why would they do this to his body? Have they not done enough? And then from behind them, a great voice says, who are you looking for? And what they didn't realize is that he had to die And they turned around and Aslan was not only standing alive, but was bigger and more powerful and more majestic. Aslan clarified that the witch knew the deep magic, but there is a magic which is deeper still. Her knowledge only went back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and into the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there was a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim, listen, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's steed, the table would crack and death would start working backward. That's it. Key words that Lewis penned in this were in the place of, but also where there was no treachery. In John 1, 29 to 34, we get the ability to understand not only who, by verse 34, who is it? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is the Lamb of God? Back to verse 29. But 30 is the key to understand verse 29. Look to verse 30. And so what we see 
Once again, when we go back and we read God's word carefully, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on whom behalf I said after me comes a man who is a higher rank than me for he existed before me. That's the key. The grounding in verse 30 is the eternality of the son as we've already addressed. Oh, when was that? Let's go back to the very beginning. John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So now what John is telling us is I've already told you this. He doesn't, there weren't verses, there weren't punctuation like this, but he's saying I started my letter with this. This is the eternal son of God who was with God, who is God. And therefore, the reason why he can provide reconciliation is as 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20 states, when Peter, another eyewitness, described how Christ ransomed or reconciled us, this is the language he used. You were ransomed from your futile or inherited ways of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Every person born in an ordinary way is an ordinary sinner. Every person born in an ordinary way is an ordinary sinner which is extraordinary. What do I mean by that? The reason why we celebrate Christmas is not because of anything we deserve, but the reason that we celebrate Christmas is that someone came in an extraordinary way to take away the sin of the world. And the only way that was made possible was verse 30. It is God. And the reason that we know it's God is John 1.14, our memory verse. He took on flesh. Who took on flesh? God. And remember I said to you two weeks ago, he didn't just take on flesh for a week or 33 years. Permanently, going forward, in our place, came to live, came to die, and lived a sinless perfect life and was killed on our behalf. Therefore, he qualifies. Do you catch the Old Testament? Spotless, blameless, without defect, lamb, sacrificial, pointing to this moment. And what does John say? Not behold the Messiah, not behold the Christ, not behold Elijah, not any of those things. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. And here we are, every person born in an ordinary way inherited Adam's sin. And that's why Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin, Romans 5.12, every man born in an ordinary way is a sinner. And sinners can't take away the sin of sinners. Sinners can't take away the sin of sinners. As a result of the divine conception and incarnation, Jesus did take on flesh. 
for sinful flesh. For his father was God, not man. My first week with you, I said, all false religions constitute two things, an elevation or a diminishing of the humanity or the deity of Christ. And so what I'm encouraging you to think about carefully this morning is that God's word balances those two beautifully. And in verse 30, reemphasizes, yes, he is God, but he's also man. Because God can't die, but men can die. And through his death and through his resurrection, because he is God, he qualifies, not just because of his life, but because of his sinless life. Through his birth he, and, and life, this enabled him, qualified him to take away the sins of the world. This does not mean, let me make sure this is so clear, this is, does not mean that all of the world's sins are taken away. That's universalism, that's heresy. But what this means, this is a code, if you will, that's saying that what Jesus came to do was to usher in salvation to Jew and Gentile. And so what you're seeing here is Jesus is coming to take away the sin, not just of Israel, not just of the homeland, but of all of the world. What is this saying? This is saying his sacrifice isn't just good enough for the temple or the surrounding community, or for that day, or for that week, for eternity going forward, this sacrifice is sufficient. This sacrifice is the only sacrifice that's going to reconcile sinners to a holy and just God. Jew and Gentile. If we don't get fired up at this, I don't know what we're excited about. Because the only reason that you're sitting here saved today, and me, it's because of the grace of God. And through the sacrificial atoning of the Son of God in our place. Sin demands punishment. But the ensuing death of Jesus and resurrection would fulfill the demands of God. For God is not just holy, he's also just. But he's not just holy and just, he's also gracious and kind. Aslan, that story, C.S. Lewis, what a great story, right? Think about this. God, in this precious story, the best stories are not just stories, they're true stories. Maybe like me, when you watch a movie and you see based on a true story, I'm immediately way more interested in that movie. Well, this is truth. It's not a true story. This is truth. And... God doesn't just provide the means. He provides his own son. He is gracious. He is kind. His very own son, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the sacrificial lamb in our place, that is the definition of a love story. Believers in the Old Testament knew that the blood of animals couldn't really take away sins permanently. Hebrews 10, 4. 
The whole system pointed forward to what would happen in the final sacrificial system for sin. And John is saying it's happening now. God is sending his own lamb into the world to take away sin. Now, maybe you wondered at my earlier comment about the identity of Christ. Didn't John really know who he was? Do you remember what happened when John was in prison right before he died? He sent people to find, hey, was this the one? Are you the one? He still didn't get it completely. So perhaps, you know, we can feel a little bit like John sometimes. But we stand on the other side of God's completed holy word. So we have crystal clarity who the identity of Christ is. But when he saw him through the divine inspiration, he said, behold, the lamb of God. By divine inspiration, he announced the rival of the lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of all the world. And this is the message of hope. This is the message of reconciliation. This is the message that John, the apostle, records. The constant shedding of blood, the Passover, twice daily in the temple, was necessary for sin. But blood, for blood must be shed for forgiveness. We get that from Hebrews 9.22. These lambs pointed forward to the one who would be sent from God to shed his blood so that one time sin could be forgiven forever. Hebrews 7, 27. The Lion of Judah came as the Lamb of God, conquered sin and death and provided the means for reconciliation to a holy and just God. It's the main point. You don't have to write it again. I'm just reemphasizing it. But what was needed was reconciliation. But what exactly does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation involves a change in a relationship between God or man. Reconciliation assumes there's been a breakdown in a relationship, but now there's a change from a state of enmity and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. Romans 5, 6 through 11, listen to God's word. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you catch how many times reconciliation was mentioned in that passage. Verse 34 is also key to understand how verse 29 is possible. Jesus is indeed the very Son of God. Listen to the senses that the book of John employ in the identification of the Son of God. 
John sees the truth. John speaks the truth. The people hear the truth. And we today read the truth. Reconciliation is the peace between humanity and God that results from the expiation and the propitiation of God's wrath. Those are big terms. Let me put it to you in English. You're a sinner. You're going to die. If you don't know Christ, you'll be eternally separated, period. That is not light and momentary affliction. For non-Christians here and online, God is the creator of all things. We know from Genesis 3, we know from Genesis 3 and beyond, that we are all sinners, period, all of us, born through the bloodline of Adam. Therefore, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin are death. But there's a free gift. There's a free gift, which is that God in his eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23, Christ who is fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in your place and in mine. And this gift is given to you but requires a response. It's not good enough just to hear, but you have to do something. So what do you have to do? Number one, you have to believe it. And two, you have to repent, which means turn from your old ways. In other words, if you just hear it and say, yeah, yeah, I get that. I don't want the demands and the punishment that comes from sin. That's not enough. We have to turn and do what they did in verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God, and they followed him. Meaning we're disciples. Meaning we live now a reoriented life, not for our old self, but in discipleship to our new Lord, which is Christ. So do you want to be saved from your sins? Repent and believe. Follow the Lamb. The third point. John the Baptist heralded and witnessed about Jesus so that the people would follow him. This is the exact opposite of every business strategy I've ever seen. Meaning, in business, you try to build up stuff, gain more stuff, acquire more stuff, market more stuff, so you have more stuff. John the Baptist realizes that his entire existence is to diminish himself and maximize Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Did that hurt John the Baptist? Or did it make him happy? Did he realize that his mission was successful? See, you have to remember, the week before... When the delegates are coming in, hey, who are you? What are you saying? How do you have this authority? Guess how long it takes for the Lamb of God to show up. One day, the next day, verse 29, the Lamb of God shows up on the scene. And then if you fast forward to verse 36, what do you see? The next day. So the people are already diminishing away from John the Baptist in two days since the delegation has started. 
And within no time at all, John the Baptist, in a sense, would become zero. And Christ would become everything. And he loved it. That's his entire purpose of being there. He got it. For the lamb is the only true permanent means to take away the sins of the world. Not universally, but for everybody who believes in him. John 13, or John 3, 16, second half of the verse. John the Baptist was laser focused on the identity of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. He properly oriented his listeners. He diminished his identity. For if the people followed him, they would die and be eternally separated without Christ. So what can we learn from John the Baptist? We've spent more time analyzing John the Baptist, I think, than most churches do. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I actually think John the Baptist may be one of the most important people in the Bible. You could include Paul in that. That is not Christ for us to learn tremendous lessons from. Why? John knew his role as a herald or a witness to the Messiah, number one. John knew that the I am was coming, which means he knew that in his third point, my third point, he knew he was the I am not. And John was performing kingdom work when the Son of God came. Don't you want that to be your testimony too? If Christ came right now and I was standing behind this pulpit preaching to you, I'm pretty happy. That's a good moment in my life. There's so many other things I do wrong that if I could just be found serving him well when he came, that would be wonderful. And what is John doing? He's baptizing people to repent of their sins. He knew his role, but he knew what his role was to point towards. John pointed the people to the Lamb because that is where hope and help is found alone. There is no eternal hope in following him, but through faith in the Lamb, reconciliation, being made right to a holy and just God, is possible. Our guilt no longer remains. I want to pause here. I want you to pay really close attention to my words. These are not lightly chosen. I think the world gets this particular point perhaps wrong more than any other point of this sermon. Our guilt no longer remains, and we are no longer under the power and the penalty of sin, which means you are free from the power and the penalty of sin, which means you should not act like you were in bondage because we are no longer in bondage. We are no longer in bondage to the power and the penalty of sin. The importance of that is manifest, made known in how we live. Much of this world will use that little statement and say, I cannot 
because I'm bound. No, you're not. You are free. The power and the penalty of sin is broken. The table is cracked. The lamb is risen. Live like it. And don't use that as a crutch because it's not true anymore. Your identity is now in Christ. Followers of Christ. Our faith is to be lived out. I have four questions for you. Technically, there's more than four, but I'll pretend like it's four at least. Are we living free from the power and the penalty of sin? Or does our former sinful self hold dominion over our lives unnecessarily and unwisely? Are we heralding Christ? Or are we heralding the world? How are we using the various means that we have to communicate to people? Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's email. How are we using whatever means we have to herald Christ versus the world? Use your time wisely. Let's do more of this. This week, I was sitting in in a meeting, and one of our church members, I won't name names, showed me one of my sermons recently where they had extracted it and made me actually seem like I knew what I was doing for at least five minutes or three minutes or two minutes or whatever it was, but had captured a, a small portion of the sermon and had some of the excerpts from it and had used that to share on social media. Let's do that. Not me. I don't care if it's me. Faithful teachers, faithful expositors of God's word. Let's use our platforms to herald our Messiah, the Lamb of God. Use it wisely, please. Are we consumed with a heart for the lost? Are we looking to build up one another, encourage one another, equip one another? The lost. Now, I'm speaking to myself here, but I'll talk to you as well. When is the last time that we've had a non-Christian in our house for dinner? Not just handing out tracts in our house for dinner. When was the last time that we invited a non-Christian to church? I mean, I I hope our church continues to grow. I'm so encouraged week by week to see new faces. That's wonderful. Praise God. But what I really want to see are people that don't know the Lamb of God come to know the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that growth is kingdom growth. And so I want us to be on mission with a heart for the lost, using our days for sinners in a dying world that are without hope and help unless they know the Lamb of God. Perhaps, like me, you might feel a little convicted by those exhortations. Good, let's do something about it. Let's change our self-orientation to have eyes to see and do something about it, to live with an urgency because death comes unexpectedly to us all. May we daily behold the Lamb, verse 29. May we have thankful hearts that the Lamb enables reconciliation, verses 29, 30, and 34. And may we all follow the Lamb. Adam and the worship team led you in a song this morning that perhaps was not familiar to you. 
but I want you to play it again and again and again this week. Andrew Peterson is the author of the song. He also sings, Is He Worthy? He also has the children's series, Wingfeather Saga or Saga, however you pronounce it in the States. Listen to the words as I close from this hymn, modern hymn. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and the light of men. Where did that come from? John 1. Behold the Lamb of God who died and who rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Wanders in the wilderness. Oh, hear the voices crying. Prepare the way, make straight the path. Your king has come to die. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have just started to unpack the majestic truths found in your words. And I pray that you use your word, which never returns void, to open up hearts that are hardened and that you use this to save for your glory. God, we pray that as we behold the Lamb, that we don't spend time in our old self as Christians, but we move forward with enthusiasm, with excitement to share of the hope and the help that we have through Christ alone. May we use our days wisely for your good, your kingdom, and your glory. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit.